Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And I want to begin by saying Merry Christmas. Okay, good. I must make sure you're there. <laughs> like you say Merry Christmas to somebody and you hope they say Merry Christmas back. As I've been thinking about being your pastor and thinking about Christmas, there's something I haven't, I haven't really said in a long time that I feel like I need to say uh, to us as a church, and that is that I love you guys. Um, I have not said that. I know I sh- sometimes don't show it and sometimes I don't say it, but I want you to hear it from my lips. I truly do love you as my church family, and I count it a privilege uh, to, to be doing life with you over the past almost 14 years of being your pastor, and I'm so appreciative of the love that you have shown our family and the love that we experience here. And so it got me thinking, as we think about Christmas time, I want us just to ask a question this morning. How are we doing at truly loving one another? with a Christ-like love. How are we doing it, loving one another? You know, it's easy, I think, at Christmas time to think about loving one another because of Christmas. There's the sentimentality of the season. Everybody's in a good, cheerful mood. Everybody's in that giving spirit, and we get wrapped up in the whole Christmas spirit, and love flows during this time, but I wonder when the gifts are exchanged and the new year hits and we get back to life as normal, how do we love each other throughout the rest of the year? How do we do that? Well, let's read together 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 13. And let's hear what the Apostle John has to say to us this morning. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his Spirit. Now, in verse 7, there's a strong exhortation to love. John says, let us love one another. Strong exhortation. Verse 11, 
he makes it stronger and says we ought to love one another. That's a command. So there's a strong obligation on believers to love one another. Now, it's also in the present tense, both of these verbs, which means that it's not just a one-time expression. It's not just a, a sentimentality. It is to be the totality of your life. You and I, if we name the name of Christ, need to have lifestyles that love one another, which leads to a very fundamental question. What does it look like to love one another? What does this love look like? What kind of love are we talking about? You know, some of you are really into music and you track the billboard charts, maybe each week to see what's on the top of the charts. They, they started tracking the, the top songs back in 1957. And even before they started tracking billboard songs, you think about the sonnets of Shakespeare and all the songs and poems throughout world history that focus on love. Well, I was born in 1971, and so I went back to the Billboard Music website to track all of the number one songs since 1971, and I found out that over 70 of them have the word love in the title. Our culture is obsessed with love. Think about the songs you know. I love rock and roll. Put another dime in the jukebox, baby. Okay, when a man loves a woman... Love is in this club. Let me love you. I want to love you. Crazy in love. How deep is your love? We could go on and on about all the songs that talk about love. I also went to Netflix to see how many movies had the word love in the title. 3,000 movies on Netflix. Love Actually, P.S. I Love You, Love Story, Love Affair, Love Come Softly, The Love Guru, Love Stinks, Love or Must Love Dogs. I could go on and on. We use the word love all the time. I love pizza. I love my dog. I'm not sure about my cat, but I love my dog. I love to ski. I love that movie. I love my grandkids. I love to go hiking. I really love my wife. I love Jesus. We use it all the time. Think about some of you old enough to remember Tina Turner's song back in the 80s, What's Love Got to Do With It? It's just a secondhand emotion. You know, our culture talks about love all the time. So you'd think by now we'd get it figured out, wouldn't you? As Christians, you'd think, okay, there's enough movies about love, enough songs about love. Everybody's talking about love. We should have this love thing down, shouldn't we? What does it mean to love biblically? Not the way the world defines it, but the way that John defines it here. You know that word, agape. And the verb form agapeo, to love sacrificially, to love unconditionally, to love selflessly for the good of others and for the glory of God. It's not just a one-time emotion. It's an ongoing attitude that's backed up with action. So what John is saying here is we're under obligation. We have no choice in the matter. It's a command incumbent upon us as Christians to continually, ongoingly, as a lifestyle, love each other sacrificially, unconditionally, selflessly for the good of others and for the glory of God. What did Jesus say? 
is the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. Matthew 22, 37 through 39, he said to them, this is Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when I start to think about loving others the way the Bible calls us to love one another, I get intimidated. It's a tall order. And it sounds kind of difficult. Because let's face it, loving other people is hard work. Don't raise your hand, but how many times do people annoy you, irritate you, lose your patience with people? And you think you're all that, and you think you're the center of the universe. And so our culture and our own heart is screaming loudly against us to to love this kind of way. So it's kind of intimidating to think about, I've got an obligation to, as a lifestyle, love other people. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at four reasons that John gives us here, why and how you can do that. Okay, it's one thing for me to stand up here and say, okay, we got to love each other. Yes, it's in the text. We've got to do it. But how do you do it? And why can you do it? And it's interesting where John starts. It's not where you and I would start, but it's where John starts. And here's reason number one. Reason number one why you and I can love each other unconditionally, sacrificially, selflessly for the good of others and for the glory of God. Here's reason number one. We have been born again by the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Notice what he says there in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. This is where the discussion about love starts. Non-believers, non-Christians can love. Non-Christian parents can love their kids. Non-Christian people can love one another. They can be kind to one another. They can do acts of charity. But only the Christian who's been born of God can love with a selfless type of love, a gospel type of love, a sacrificial love to the glory of God. And notice what he says there. The only reason you can love is because you've been born of God. In other words, you've been born again. Down in verse 13, he tells us that the Holy Spirit's been given to us to live inside of us. So the only reason that you and I can even begin to love each other is because of what the Spirit has done in us to cause us to be born again. John 1, 12-13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born... Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You become a child of God because you're born of God. You're born again. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 6 through 8, That which is born of flesh is flesh, 
That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. You have been born of God through the Holy Spirit, causing new life to come into you, whereby you now have the power and the ability to love each other. And the grammar here is very, is very uh, key to understanding this passage of Scripture. When John there in verse 7 says, you've been born of God, and down in verse 13 he says the Holy Spirit's been given, that's in a verb tense in the original language that means a permanence. It's a lasting gift. In other words, the Holy Spirit's been given to you and he can never leave you. You've been born again and you can never unbe born again. It's a lasting presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And oftentimes, we start the conversation in the wrong place. I could stand up here to say, listen, Manuel Baptist Church, you and I are not doing a good job of loving one another, so get busy at it. Just love each other more deeply. Love each other more intensely. Love each other more wholeheartedly. Do a better job at loving one another. Just do it. It tells you right here to do it. You ought to do it, so do it. Now, two reactions are going to come from you this morning if I just stand up there and start there. Some of you that are prideful are going to be, okay, I can do it. The Bible tells me to do it. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps, and I'm going to will myself to love other people because, by golly, I can do it in my flesh. Others of you are going to be like, I cannot even begin to do that, so I'm not even going to try. And I already feel defeated. I already feel hopeless. I already feel weak. I can't love other people. So we don't start with the command to tell you to love more intently without rooting it in what John says. Yes, you and I must love each other, but the only way we can love each other is because we've been born again. The Holy Spirit has come and lived inside of us. He gives us the sustaining power and desire to love. Now, John, don't read 1 John unless you want to be kicked in the face. Okay? I thought about preaching 1 John, and every time I keep coming back to it, I'm like, I don't know if I can preach this. This is a difficult passage of Scripture. Because you're like, what, John? What are you, what are you saying here? Look at verse 8. Just when you thought you were safe. Anyone who does not love does not know God. That's a strong statement. It's a warning. What's John saying? He's saying this. You better examine your life, Christian. Because if your life is marked by lovelessness, by bitterness, you aren't loving each other, doesn't necessarily mean you're not saved, but it could mean that you're not saved. In other words, John's saying there's no such thing as a loveless Christian. John Stott makes this interesting observation. He says, For the loveless Christian to profess to know God and to have been born of God is like claiming to be intimate with a foreigner whose language we cannot speak or to have been born of parents whom we do not in any way resemble. A Christian resembles his father or her father in that you are marked by a lifestyle of love. 
And that comes through the Spirit living in you, giving you the power to do that. So reason number one that you and I can love is because we've been born again. That's where it starts. You and I cannot love each other the way God calls us to love each other unless we've experienced that new birth through the Holy Spirit causing us to be born again. Here's reason number two. God's eternal nature is the essence of love. God's eternal nature is the essence of love. Verse 7, for love is from God. Love comes from God. God defines love. It comes from Him. And then at the end of verse 8, you have that famous statement that you all know. God is love. God is love. There are four statements in the New Testament that tell us what God is. God is something. The first is in John chapter 4, verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. God is spirit. He's the eternal, invisible, only wise God worthy of all of our worship. He is spirit. Okay? Hebrews 12, 29. For our God is a consuming fire. He's holy. He has the right to punish sin. Not only is God spirit, but he's, he's holy. He's a consuming fire. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is absolutely pure and holy. So, so God is spirit. God is a consuming fire. God is light. And then here, the fourth one, God is love. Now, we need to be careful here because oftentimes in our culture, people are going to elevate one of the attributes of God above another and get out of balance. Our culture tends to elevate God is love to the highest. And what they mean by that, what the culture means by that is well, God is love. He would never send anybody to hell, would he? God is love. That means we, we can't say that Jesus is the only way of salvation. That sounds narrow-minded. Well, God is love. That means I can live however I want and follow my heart because after all, God is, is love. God is love. Absolutely. But he's also a consuming fire. He's also light. He's also spirit. And so when we start to begin to define love, let's start with God and not with the culture. If I were to go out into the world and ask people, how do you define love? I would probably get two answers. Lust and a sentimental feeling. We tend to define love by how we love. That's not where the definition starts. It starts with God who is love. It's not infatuation, it's not lust, it's not some sentimental feeling. God is the essence of love. Now, God is love in his essence, but we don't just leave it hanging out there because John tells us that love comes in concrete action. So this is the third reason why we can love. Number one, we love because we've been born again. We've got the power to love because the Holy Spirit's inside of us. Number two, we love because God is the essence of love, and he defines love, and he is love. But here's number three. God sent his only son as the perfect gift of love. 
God sent his son as the perfect gift of love. In verse 9, John defines how this God who is love demonstrated his love or manifested his love. In verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. Made manifest. That word means to put on display. To shine brightly, to put on display so all can see. So the God who is love did something very concrete in action, in history, put it on display for all to see. What did he do? He sent his only son into the world. He sent his only. Now, if you have the King James, he probably says only begotten son. If you have the NIV, it probably says one and only. ESV says only. It's a very unique Greek word, monogenes. It means unique, one of a kind, special only. It refers to Jesus as being fully God, his divinity. But it also talks about that there is no other gift like Jesus because he is the unique, one and only son of God. Jesus is the greatest gift of all because there's nobody else like Jesus. He's the one and only Son of God. And God sent His unique, one and only, only begotten Son. He sent Him. Now, in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, Paul uses the word sent or gave. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? John is fond of using Jesus was sent. God sent the son. God gave his only son. It's the same thing in John 3.16, his one and only son. But Paul here in Romans 8 says God did not spare his son. Now, when you give something or you send something, it's one thing to say I'm sending it. I'm giving it. It's another thing saying, I'm not sparing that son. Well, what's, what's Jesus not being spared? Jesus is receiving the death on the cross that we deserved. You see, instead of us dying on the cross, Jesus dies the death we should have died. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9.15, and think about this, this have this memorized this, this Christmas. Thanks be to God for his inexcribable gift. Jesus is the inexpressible, undescribable gift because he's the one and only son of God sent to die. Now, God sent Jesus into the world and he provides two truths here to tell us what that means. Okay, so first of all, in verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest that God sent his only son into the world so that, okay, why? There's a so that there. Why was Jesus sent into the world? That we might live through him. That we might live through him. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, if Jesus came so that we might live through him, what does that assume? That assumes that before you have a relationship with Jesus, you are not living. 
And you say, what do you mean I'm not living? I'm walking around, I'm breathing, I'm living. No, the Bible says without Jesus, you are spiritually dead. You're spiritually dead in your trespasses. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So before you have a relationship with Christ, you're not truly living in the spiritual, eternal sense of what the word means. You're existing, but you're at enmity with God, and you're separated from God, and you're spiritually dead. But notice what Paul says there. I mean, what John says there. John says that we might live through him. Through him. What's the only way that you can live? It's through a relationship with Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2, 5-6, there's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The only way you and I can truly live is through Jesus. It comes no other way. He is the only way that we can live truly. Okay, so Jesus was sent, the one and only, unique, one-of-a-kind, special, indescribable gift God sent that we might live through him. But secondly, notice what he says there in verse 10. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. Okay, there's it twice there. Sent his son. We see it back up there in verse 9. You see it again in verse 10. To be the propitiation for our sins. And some of you were laughing last week when I did the Cajun propitiation. We looked at that word last week. Propitiation. What's the idea of propitiation? We described a little bit last week, but propitiation means that Jesus took the full punishment that was deserved for us in his body. He, he took God's justice. He took God's wrath against sin. Um, Ephesians 2, verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature. Your condition without Jesus as your Savior is one of being a child of wrath, a child of judgment, deserving of judgment. And propitiation means Jesus took that in your place. Jesus says in John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God's wrath remains on you if you don't have Christ as your Savior. You see, in your natural state, you're spiritually dead. You don't have life. And you are at odds against God and deserving of his condemnation. That's why Jesus had to be sent. Because you and I hated God. Now you may say, we hated God? What do you mean we hated God? What does Paul say in Romans 8, 6-8? For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh, that's a lost person, an unregenerate, an unsaved person, that, that person is hostile to God, does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Here's the point that John's making. Left to ourselves, never in a million years would we ever be able to make the first move towards God and love him. 
because we're spiritually dead and we're objects of his wrath and we are separated. That's why John says here, notice what he says in verse 10. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. Where does it start? God always takes the initiative. God always loves first. And when did God begin to love you? Trick question. Let me give you a quote from Gerhardus Vass. Say that three times fast. He's a Dutch theologian. The reason God will never stop loving you is that he never began. When did God start loving you? Well, in eternity past, he set his affection upon you and he will continue to love you. Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've continued my faithfulness to you. Why did God send Jesus as the indescribable gift? Because he loved us first. We didn't love God and then kind of force his hand to send Jesus. No, God loved us first. And because the, the love starts with God, God sent Jesus that we might have life, that we might have forgiveness of sins, that he might be the propitiation. You know, there's an old famous hymn by the, the Wesley brothers, Charles Wesley, John Wesley, and can it be? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. And you probably have heard these lyrics before. Amazing love, how can it be that that my God should die for me? It's amazing love. Now think about this for a moment. God's love is eternal for you. God's love is unconditional for you. But it's never abstract. It always comes in concrete action. What did God do? Did God just say, I love you? Have a nice life. No, he said, I love you. Therefore, I'm going to send Jesus to die in your place. I'm going to prove my love to you with action. And because God loved with action, we too must love with action. You and I cannot love each other sacrificially until we rest in the security of God's love for us in the cross. Now, so here's what happens. When you look at the cross, when you look at propitiation, when you look at what Christ did, when you begin to think about all the things that Jesus did for you on the cross and in his death and his resurrection, that in turn motivates you, that empowers you to love others because of the way that you were loved. Let me just ask everybody a question here. Do you and I deserve God's love? Was God obligated to love us? Absolutely not. Do other people deserve our love? Now we may think that. They don't deserve my love. I don't want to love them. They've not measured up to my standard. They, they haven't met my qualifications. I'm not going to love them until they love me back. What if God loved us that way? I'm not going to love you humans until you love me back the right way. Till you get your life squared away, till you become perfect, till you never sin. And when you get to that point of, uh, of, of perfection, then I may think about sending Jesus to die for you. What if God had that attitude towards us? 
Romans 5, 8 through 9. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Psalm 133-4, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Every bit of love that you and I have for other people is always an overflow of God's love for us first. You cannot love other people until you first realize the depth of God's love for you. And then that becomes an overflow. That becomes a response to God's love for you. Now think about our progression so far. What's John teaching us so far? He starts out and says, okay, listen, the only way you can love is because you've been born again. You've got to be born again. You've got to have a new heart. You've got to be regenerated. You can't love in your flesh. It has to be the new birth. And you and I could never love in a million years unless God took the initiative to love us first. And you and I can't love unless we have life through Jesus. When he gives us that life, we can love others. And because he died in our place as a propitiation, taking God's wrath, we can love each other because we think about how God loved us. And here's the fourth reason. And it's a powerful one. God continually perfects his love in us. God continually perfects his love in us. Look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God... If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, this passage got me thinking for a moment. John's been talking about love, 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 and all of a sudden he throws in there, no one's ever seen God. John, that seems like it's kind of out of the, out of the way there. What, what do you mean no one's ever seen God? Well, okay, we can take it as a theological point. Okay, no one's ever seen God. No one's ever seen God with the naked eye. Moses had to be hidden in the cleft of the rock. No one can see God and live. No one's ever seen God with the naked eye. What does that have to do with love? And it got me thinking. How do people see God? Through the love of his people towards one another. You can't see God, but in a sense you can see God. How can you see God? The greatest display of people being able to see God is when Christians love one another. That's how people see God. And notice the Holy Spirit continually lives in us. God abides in us. He, he continually lives in us. He gives us that power to, to sustain that love. His love is perfected in us. His love is completed in us. He, he continues to give us the, the grace and the power and the sustaining strength to, to love one another because the Holy Spirit abides in us. And that love will overflow to others. 1 John 3, 17-18. If anyone has the world's goods, <coughs> excuse me, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide? There's the same word, abide in him. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, here's the point. You and I can have the greatest intentions to love others. I really think I need to love that person. I really need to show love to somebody else. You may feel it. 
You may think it. You may intend it. But it's not truly love until you show it with action. It's got to be backed up with concrete action. John says you can tell people you love them, but until you show them and you demonstrate them, God is love. But how did he demonstrate it? In concrete action by sending Jesus to die. So let's make this real practical this Christmas. How can you practically show this type of love to others, especially this Christmas, but, but hopefully throughout the rest of the year? Let me give you three suggestions and again, these suggestions are general because I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit will work them out in specific ways in your life. So you need to be open to the working of the Spirit in your life to how these are going to flesh out in your life. So these are general to appeal to all of us, but I pray that, that they will make particular application through the Holy Spirit. So here's number one. First of all, give of yourself by investing time in others. Gifts are nice, but the greatest gift you can give somebody else is yourself. Carve out time to invest in someone. It could be your spouse, it could be your child, it could be a friend, it could be a parent. Instead of being so busy and consumed with yourself, give of yourself as a gift this Christmas. You know, my pastor growing up, I don't remember anything my pastor said growing up when I was like in elementary school. There's one thing I remember he said, because he said it all the time. How do you spell love? T-I-M-E. How do you spell love? T-I-M-E. Are you going to give of yourself? Gifts are nice, but are you going to spend time with those that you love in very meaningful ways? 1 Thessalonians 2, 8, Paul says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but ourselves, because you'd become very dear to us. Paul says, listen, we wanted to share the gospel, and we did. But we didn't just share the gospel with you, we shared ourselves. Would you share of yourself this Christmas in a meaningful way? That's one practical way. Second, Bless someone financially or through some type of encouragement, but let it be anonymous. Don't draw attention to yourself, but do something behind the scenes to bless someone who might need help, and don't draw attention to yourself. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 2-4, through Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. How can you bless somebody? It doesn't necessarily have to be financially. It could be an anonymous card. It could be a, a gift basket. Some way you can bless somebody anonymously just to show them that you love them. Okay, here's number three. Number three, tell a non-Christian about Jesus this week or in the next week and then back up your message with your actions. Tell a non-Christian about the love of Christ. First Peter 3.15, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Well, the last thing somebody needs is for you to preach at them and then have a lifestyle that doesn't back up what you're saying. Share the gospel. Share the love of Christ with someone who does not have a love of Christ, but don't look at it as a project. Don't say, okay, I've shared with them the gospel. Now I'm done. If they never, ever trust Christ for salvation, will you still be their friend? Will you still care about them? I think sometimes as Christians, we look at at non-Christians as a project that we've got to get them saved. And once I get them saved, I moved on to the next one. No, what happens if you love and love and pour into that person and they never become a Christian? I mean, God's sovereign over that, but let's say they never become a Christian. Will you still love them? Will you still be their friend? Look at verse 14 for a moment. Back in our main text here. John says, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That's a Christmas message right there. Jesus has been sent to be the Savior of the world. If that is true, let us love each other in light of that reality. Let us enjoy Christmas and celebrate the birth of our Savior. Let us sing with glad hearts, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. So my prayer for all of us is that this Christmas, you experience the deep, deep love of Jesus. And that you share that love with others. It's easy at Christmas time to be loving. What I'm calling us to is a high calling as a church family. How are we going to wholeheartedly, passionately, consistently, sacrificially, unconditionally, selflessly love one another all year round? It comes because Jesus is your Savior. He's the Savior of the world. You need and I need to love each other. And the world needs to know that they can have hope this Christmas. And where better to get it than from your love to them in very concrete ways that demonstrate their good and God's glory. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. We think about Christmas, and we just want to pause. We want to pause this morning and thank you for the indescribable, inexpressible gift of Jesus. Lord, never in a million years could we begin to love you or take the initiative to save ourselves or clean ourselves up. We were spiritually dead, and we stood against you. But Father, because of your great love, you sent Jesus that we might have life through him, that we might have forgiveness through his propitiation on the cross. You've given us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, never to leave us, to sustain us with the ongoing grace to love. So Lord, would we be a people 
don't just love with words, but in action and in truth. And would our love for each other be an overflow of your love for us? And Lord, when we find it difficult to love others, when we we don't find other people, quote unquote, worthy of our love, let us just go back to the cross and realize how you loved us. We weren't worthy of your love, but you loved us anyway. And you did it with action. So Lord, help us to take these application points. And Lord, I just pray, Holy Spirit, you'd, you'd guide and direct people in the individual ways this week that they can live that out. Jesus, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for your love. Let us be a people that love one another because you first loved us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.